Hi, welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Coming up today, Trudeau and Biden's first dance. What's the song? Canada says China is conducting genocide. And should kids be in school during a third wave? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Sorry I missed yesterday, but please, please, keep the comments down to a minimum. My dad gets pretty jealous when I get more fan mail than he does. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! I don't know if that's the case. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Jordan Armini is producing the content. We got another banger one for you today. Lots going on in regard to uh, Canadian politics. Let's uh, uh, play a quick clip here of Jugmeet Singh, NDP leader. Here is what he is looking for during this meeting between uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and President Joe Biden. We're proposing that there should be a modification, an exception for Canada, given the fact that our economies are so integrated. Products aren't just made in Canada or America. Often the very same product goes over the border a couple of times and products come from both America and Canada to produce the final end product. So we need to continue to say you know, there needs to be an exception for Canada, given their, our economy's integration, perhaps a North American clause instead, but certainly not one that excludes Canadians, which is going to deeply impact Canadian and American manufacturers who rely on each other. All right, let's bring in David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yep, doing just great. It's not going to be as exciting, I think, as everybody thinks, but well, it is an important one. When is it happening exactly? Do you know the exact time yeah. of when this is going down? So, so remember, it's all virtual. So mm-hmm. normally, you know, you think back to Obama, which was the last sort of non-Trump president. Obama actually came to Ottawa, which is mm-hmm. his first visit outside the country. And, of course, a guy named Joe Biden was Obama's VP. This time around, it's all virtual, and they're going to get together on video conference at about 4 p.m. this afternoon. Now, it's not public or anything. There'll be like a photo op off the top. Um, so the two leaders chat for a bit at 4, and then they bring in members of their cabinet, uh, just a select few, uh, our defense minister, our environment minister, and so on. And then at 5.45 Eastern, again, assuming things are running on time, uh, then there's going to be a joint statement. So Biden will stand in front of the video camera from the White House, and Trudeau will do the same from the West Block, and they will say something. It doesn't look like there's going to be chances for reporters to put questions to the leaders, and normally there would be if they were both physically in the same place. That's that's the agenda. So you can see there's there, there, not a lot of time, 90 minutes basically, they're going to be chatting, and they got, you know, yeah, absolutely, there's, there's a ton of things. Anytime Canada and the U.S. want to chat about something, there's a ton of stuff on the agenda. Uh, as you mentioned, normally this is uh, the sort of conversation that has that happens in person. A lot of the times, it's mm-hmm. been uh, Canada who have, who the U.S. president has reached out to first. Although that wasn't the last time. Um, is it is it different this time just because of the severity of a where America is, where COVID-19 is? Uh, as you mentioned, it's going to be like grocery list of things to, to check off here. Is it different this time? Is there more intensity in this meeting because of the state of the world? In fact, actually, it's the exact opposite in terms of intensity. I, there, there, there's always some important issues and, it, it, you know, that that it, 
it, I don't care the, the president or the prime minister. There's always something that people are going to ring five alarm bells. But I think that the real importance of this particular Canada-U.S. heads of government meeting is it comes after four years of Trump. It comes after four years of the United States foreign relations being a one-man show, Trump. There'd be a tweet storm before the meeting, a tweet storm after the meeting. He'd call you names. His cabinet might participate, but you couldn't trust that, you know, if you wanted to do a deal with a cabinet minister, a transportation secretary, and so on, that that transportation secretary would have the backing of the president. That's the way Trump did it. And it caused all sorts of problems for us, for Canada, and for our allies. And so this meeting is remarkable, if you ask me, for the fact that it's going to be boring and dull. At mm. the end of it, we're not expecting any major announcements. There's not going to be a big reveal of this or that. They're going to say nice things about each other. They're going to say that Canada and the U.S. have a long friendship. They're going to talk about the importance of international cooperation. And that'll be that. And you know what? That's what Canada needs. And more importantly for the United States, that is the message Biden's trying to say, send to the allies. And that's why Biden is having his first official bilat with Canada because that's the way it's been done most of the time since the Second World War. And that sort of traditional approach, a quiet, normal diplomacy that focuses on international cooperation, sends a huge message to Western Europe and all of America's allies that, that this is the, the United States is going to return to that sort of approach to global affairs. And once you've got that established, then, yes, Let's talk about what we're doing about China. What are we doing about cross-border trade and possible tariff laws? What are we doing about climate change? All these issues that Biden and Trudeau are, are definitely going to talk about, but the big overarching thing is that, well, look at that, a U.S.-Canada call between two leaders, and there wasn't a tweet storm afterwards. You know what I'm saying? You, you bring up a valid point, David. I mean, and I guess this is what he, during his first 100 days, will do, will try to project some sort of stability. I mean, you know, there was a time when people complained that they never heard from their politicians. Then, of course, we ended up with a president who you heard from <laughs> virtually every hour. Yeah. And now that stops. So, yeah, I, I see your point. It's like everybody's taking a, a, a deep breath and waiting for something to happen, waiting for the floor to fall out. But this will just probably be more consistency and a show of stability. Yeah, and, and, and that's not to say that there aren't going to be some important things that, that the Canadian side wants to move the ball forward with. What and, do you think the, the first thing will be? Like, obviously, would it be COVID-19 simply because no. it is the world issue right now? No, it'll be uh, by America is the top of mm. the charts for the Canadian side. You probably heard of this. This is the idea that Biden, like Trump before him, and actually like Obama, is into this idea that if the federal government in the United States is going to spend money on infrastructure and economic recovery, then American firms ought to get those dollars. This happened in 08-09 when we had the fiscal crisis and it was time to rebuild. And Obama, again, with a guy named Biden as his VP, wanted to do the same thing. And at the time, Stephen Harper, then prime minister, stepped in and you know basically said, you know, listen, guys, uh, we are an integrated economy. You know, the steel they're making in Hamilton is what's going into buildings in the United States, and parts we're making for cars are coming up to the GTA to go into the cars we're assembling. So we're an integrated economy, so let's keep that in mind, and it makes no sense to freeze out firms on either side of the border for government contracts. It's also, I think, uh, against the, the trade deals that Canada and the U.S. and Mexico have signed, the, the new NAFTA, the COSMA. So that's going to be the first thing Trudeau's going to bring up to remind Biden, hey, let's go back to look at what we did in 08-09 and solve both our problems. Biden, remember, and Trudeau, to a point, they're both politically kind of weak. 
I mean, Trudeau's got this minority government, and, you know, his approval numbers have been sinking a bit because of the vaccine. And Biden, I know the Democrats have both houses of Congress, but it's razor thin. We, they have elections again in two years, and I don't know if the Dems are going to hold the, the House. So Biden's got to worry about, you know, he doesn't have a lot of time. He's got to get stuff done. He doesn't want Canada to be a problem. Canada can help itself by helping Biden solve problems. And but by America might be one of these. Climate change is another thing because Biden has to deal with his progressive caucus. He's got quite a he's got a, a small you know group of very progressive uh, Congress representatives and senators want some action. Climate change is the place to do it. So today on this call, John Kerry is going to be in. John Kerry is Biden's point man on climate. Our environment minister John Wilkinson is going to be on on it, and they're going to talk about where how can we work together on climate change. I'll tell you one area, and again this goes to the auto industry and the GTA zero emission vehicles. Um, how are we going to get people into these, you know, latest, greatest zero-emission vehicles? You know, GM said yeah. it's all going to be all electric from them in uh, a decade or two. Uh, what about the rest of the industry? That's big, important stuff. And here's how things changed from when Trump did it. Again, I mentioned it's going to be cabinet to cabinet. So, so Biden and Trudeau will say zero-emission vehicles. Great. Hit our climate change targets. Create some good prosperity. How are we going to do that? And then they'll turn to, in Trudeau's case, his transport minister, Omar Al-Gabra from Mississauga, and Biden's going to turn to his transportation secretary, who's Pete Buttigieg. And, and the two leaders will say, hey, Pete, hey, Omar, you guys go work on this zero-emission vehicle file. And that's how it used to happen under Obama, under Clinton, under George Bush 1, George Bush 2. It didn't work that way under Trump because it was all about Trump. Nothing got done and stuff often got undone because of Trump. And again, I come back to that's the real difference here. So no big announcement, but this is what we're going to be looking for in the days ahead is, okay, uh, you know, Minister Agabra, what are you doing with uh, Secretary Buttigieg or whatever it might be? That's how, that's how this relationship sort of gets that reset right now. What about uh, border reopening, uh, David? I mean, obviously, the pandemic's going to have to get under control on both sides of the border. Uh, initially, it was, well, we don't want the Americans coming up here. And, and now it might turn to be the opposite in the spring where they're vaccinated and we're not there yet. So where is border openings on this? And won't it be contingent on both sides being vaccinated? Um, and we have asked, uh, I've asked personally the Prime Minister about this, you know, we're getting vaccinated, why can't we drop, you know, public health rules in, in Canada, let alone internationally? And the answer really is, at this point, we still don't, the, the, the science is still out on whether or not someone who is vaccinated uh, is in fact not still spreading. It seems right. yeah, that, that that's usually the way it works. You get vaccinated, you're no longer carrying and spreading the disease. But we don't know that for sure. The science is still out. So that's one thing. Two is... Other borders that uh, not just the U.S. border, but we, the rest of the world needs to get vaccinated before we can really say with confidence that travel, uh, non-essential non travel is really ready to go. I think if there is a discussion about the future of the opening of the border to non-essential travel, to people, you know, I, I used to live in Guelph. Heck, we drive to Buffalo for the wings. Who doesn't, right? I mean, that's where you like to go. Well, you can't do that now. And so uh, to get that kind of travel back again, the two leaders may say, what, what does that world have to look like? What does the R level have to be in our, in our states and provinces? Uh, where do we need to be going in terms of hospital capacity? It's going to be a while now. And I got to tell you, 
I, I've taken a lot of po- a lot of polling has been done by the government, and I've actually got some of this through an access to information request. And they're polling Canadians, saying, "Should we open the border?" Um, and and basically, Canadians are saying, "No, there's no no rush mm. there." There's business owners, I'm sure, on the border going, "Come on, let's go." But believe me, the the weight of public opinion in Canada right now is we don't need a, that border being open. So, I, you know, it's, it's going to come up, but sort of in terms of the long long distance view of of where we're going with that sort of thing. Where does China fit in in all of this, David? Obviously, uh, the two Michaels of a concern, uh, the Huawei CFO being held uh, waiting for extradition to the United States, uh, and and obviously the declaration by Parliament yesterday that China is committing genocide on the uh, Uyghur Muslims. Where would that fit into this? Is and is can can Biden be of any help whatsoever in this? Biden, the U.S. can definitely be of help. There's no question about that. And that's, I mean, the, the, the Trudeau gang has known that for a while, and they tried to get Trump to help. Not, you know, he might say something, but it, it was clear he wasn't that motivated. Biden is motivated. Biden has already said that he has issues with China on the broad human rights agenda. And you know what? So does Trudeau. In fact, Trudeau brought up China and the broad human rights question last week when the G7 leaders met, and Biden would have been in on that call. So Trudeau's already put the marker down. Canada's very interested in building an international coalition about about forcing China on human rights. I don't think there's going to be specific discussion in which Trudeau says to Biden tonight, okay, Joe, what are we going to do about this Meng Wanzhou case and the two Michaels? That that question's not going to happen, but that will be referenced, the two Michaels, as part, as they say, this broad human rights thing, where we talk about the Uyghurs, we talk about arbitrary detention, that's your two Michaels, we talk about democracy protests in Hong Kong. Biden and Trudeau will talk very high level about that issue, and then again, yes, uh, officials or cabinet-level people will start to talk about details. On the two Michaels and on Hmong, it's important to note one person on our side not in this call, and that is the Justice Minister, David Lametti. It will be Minister Lametti who at some point is going to have to make a decision on Mung's uh, extradition or not, and he's not in the call today. Now, there has been some rumblings out of Washington that Biden may approach the case against Mung differently. Still rumblings. And don't forget, the reason we're holding Mung is because the U.S. wants Mung for fraud. Fraud, the U.S. alleges, is committed in relation to the Trump ban on trade with Iran. So the Trump administration alleged Huawei and Hmong did some uh, shady business to continue to trade with Iran. That would have violated U.S. law at the time. If Biden's approach on Iran is different, then maybe they can work something out with Huawei and Hmong, and then we don't need to hold her, and away she goes. But that's, as they say, that's really in the weeds details that Biden and Trudeau are not going to address except in the context we've got to hold China to some you know, international human rights standards. Um, they'll let the, the details on the Hmong case be handled by Justice Department officials, U.S. State, U.S. Attorney General. David, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. No problem. Have a great afternoon. Cheers. All right, that is David Aiken from Global News. Uh, make sure you're watching Global News tonight for, uh, for more on all of this. All right, here is today's Daily Commentary. Canadian members of Parliament voted to support a motion formally recognizing China's treatment of its ethnic Muslim Uyghur population as a genocide. 
The conservative motion passed overwhelmingly across all party lines, including liberals in the House of Commons with a vote of 266 to zero. However, the Liberal cabinet abstained from voting, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who didn't even bother to show up for the conversation, let alone vote on his debate. That debate being the Prime Minister refusing to use the term genocide when referring to China, saying more study needs to be done. You'll have a hard time finding anyone, academic or otherwise, who agrees with the Prime Minister, who isn't on his team. Whether it's making a vaccine deal with China only to have them pull the plug or the two Michaels who have now been imprisoned in China for over 800 days for the international extradition warrant on the Huawei CFO. Why does Justin Trudeau constantly defend the Chinese Communist Party while they continue to bully us and kick us to the curb? We all want to know. I'm Scott Thompson. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. He is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Scott, I got a promotion, by the way. I'm chair now, chair of Summa Strategies. So oh, I will scratch out the vice. I Congratulations. I know. they. I don't know what that means in reality, but uh, you can put it on there. So otherwise, <laughs> I'm doing fine. Thank you. Well, congratulations. That's great to hear. Uh, onward and upward, as they say. All right. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. Obviously, the meeting with, between Biden and Trudeau, but also want to touch on yesterday what happened uh, with the declaration of uh, genocide against China and its treatment of the Uyghur Muslims and such. Uh, the House uh, overwhelmingly voted uh, to support this. However, uh, the cabinet, the liberal cabinet was missing as well as the prime minister. Should he not have at least been there uh, just to explain? himself or his position on all of this uh he's also said that he you know he needs more study on this wouldn't watching this investigation or sorry watching this debate yesterday have aided towards that uh well i don't think the liberals would have wanted the prime minister there abstaining that would have been a visual that would have haunted him um but i think to your point about explaining i i think to the average person the they need to hear more from the Prime Minister why most of his MPs, except those in Cabinet, and every other MP who, who usually don't find the issues of common ground are so committed to call out the Chinese for the Uyghur uh, genocide. And I think he uh, he's he's going to find that there's a lot of pressure there. There may be good reasons why, but on the surface, there don't look like they're good reasons why. So there's a, they, they, they need to explain themselves more. Uh, obviously, he's chatting with Biden today, so that pretty much uh, removes this as the top story. But what? how will he react to this in the upcoming days? The fact that, as you mentioned, uh, it was, I think, 266 to zero vote uh, in favor of this. And the worldwide headline is Canadian Parliament uh, condemns the uh, Chinese genocide of the Uyghurs. Um, and he may want that headline, too. It may give him some 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 room to maneuver. But. You can't, I don't know how much longer he can sit on the fence there. I think Canadians are getting very frustrated with the Chinese, particularly as it relates to the two Michaels, the fact that they're still detained, that nothing has happened yet. It's been, well, I guess, nearly 800 days now. 
so the prime minister is going to get some pressure, um, and and he should get some pressure on all of this. Again, there may be things happening behind the scenes that he can't say anything about, um, but uh, but Canadians want some answers here, Scott. Is the prime minister getting the message that Canadians are not happy with China, and or his? It would appears to it appears he has a soft spot for China. Uh, is he aware that that irritates Canadians? Well, I, I, particularly after yesterday, you, you know, maybe the prime minister's view is I don't care what the opposition say; it doesn't matter. They're just going to oppose me anyway. But when he has many parliamentarians from his own team saying that this isn't good and those parliamentarians are going to put their name on a ballot for him or many of them will in the next election and they're signaling that this is an important issue uh then he has if he if he hasn't gotten the message he needs to the undoing of political parties the undoing of of leadership is when your own party feels that you're tone deaf on a specific issue. Now, there may have been a grand strategy here. I'm not saying that there wasn't, but if if there is an element of tone deafness, Justin Trudeau's going to want to get a hearing aid pretty quickly. Uh, he's, he, he, the Prime Minister is, is obviously tiptoeing through this. He's saying that there is an adequate proof, yet it's pretty hard to find somebody who's not in agreement that this is a genocide. Uh, exactly. And... Uh, I mean, maybe he and Biden say something today. Maybe there's a more forceful position against China, but he's creating political space for Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole's generally gotten this issue right, other than the, you know, calling for the movement of the Olympics. I mean, that's a silly policy proposition that's not doable, uh, and he should say as much. But on, on the rest of the file, O'Toole has been right that there needs to be a stronger Canadian voice on 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 what's happening with Uyghurs, what's happening with um, with the two Michaels. I mean, it's been a very long time, and Canadians um, probably still feel like they're kind of patsies to the Chinese, which it looks like we are. Um, you, you mentioned the Olympics, uh, and obviously changing the location of the Olympics. Many have said that's pretty much near impossible. So is the answer to send... Uh, not to send our athletes to the games because you have to think if can- Canadians are concerned about the security of the two Michaels and the safety of the two Michaels, they're certainly concerned the same way for their entourage and, and athletes that are going there. Well, I mean, I guess it starts with the International Olympic Committee who uh, whose values supposedly are friendship, respect, uh, and uh, uh, education, I think is the other one, uh, shouldn't have ever awarded to Beijing. Now it's in Beijing. I don't know if the boycott is the answer. You have to go back in history and ask if anything changed, if the Cold War ended quicker because of the 1980 boycott of the Moscow Olympics. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I don't think it did. Historians could argue this better. Um, you know I uh, am the president of a uh, a national athletic organization, Rugby Canada. We have athletes that compete in the Olympics. My personal view is the athletes shouldn't suffer. Um, the debate isn't a terrible thing, but I'm not sure that boycotting is the way to go. I think we need to look long and, and hard at that, and if it has the intended impact or if it's just the athletes in the end who lose out because it's not going to make a difference to the Chinese, and that's who we're trying to move here. Uh, so this declaration yesterday by uh, the House of Commons, and again, the Chinese doesn't care whether Trudeau recognizes it or not. There, as you said, the headline around the world is uh, what it is. Uh, does this hurt or help us? Is it about time or is this, uh-oh, we're going to be in trouble now. They're going to do something else to us. 
Well, it probably makes us feel good. Um, maybe there's some value in that at the moment, uh, standing up in tough times for uh, for for people around the world who are being uh, murdered uh, and standing up. I think many people feel for the the, the two Michaels. In practical terms, I, I you know are the Chinese going to how are the Chinese going to seek retribution? Uh, it's, I, I don't know what the real practical impact of it will be, though we probably, as I say, have an emotional release with it. Look, the real you want to have a real impact with the Chinese and decisions the government control. There's the Huawei decision. How come that thing hasn't been yeah. done yet? <laughs> will mean, that like, come up with Scott, Biden? We've been talking about this for a year, Huawei, uh, and it's still not done. So do you think that will come up with Biden this afternoon? The Huawei deal, the 5G? Maybe it will. I mean, they should be. They tend in these meetings generally to talk about global uh, global security. Um, and uh, maybe something said on Men, 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 Men Wangzhou, and which is key to the two Michaels. Um, maybe the Americans drop their charges there, and then we can ban Huawei. I, I mean, there's clearly a chain of events that I, our diplomats and the American diplomats believe need to happen to free the two Michaels. It would just be good if they could share some more information about that. Will Biden help Canada with the two Michaels, considering where we are now, sort of between a rock and a hard place due to the fact that the Huawei CFO is is being held uh, in Vancouver? Uh, and along with this declaration, will will Biden stand shoulder to shoulder with Trudeau on this? I think he's more likely to do it than Trump was. And it wasn't yeah. it wasn't his Justice Department that sought the extradition order either. So he had some latitude to move um so he's more likely to be a canadian partner than not uh do you think anything any announcement they're supposed to make an announcement this afternoon i uh, i believe it's around five forty-five. uh a joint statement what, what do you expect to come out uh, come out of that oh uh, you know that there's i think the key message they want to deliver to the world is look there's a a, a normal pace to global relations now that uh the U.S. president always meets with the Canadian prime minister as a first uh, move when he or she is elected. Always just been he's at this point. So there's normalcy. They'll try and project calm. I think you'll hear something about the need uh, climate change. I think Trudeau is hoping two things Biden will speak to. One is uh, if the Americans get vaccinated faster, as embarrassing as that may be to the government, they want more of that uh, COVID vaccine that's being produced just down the road from you. That uh, was the up. that was my next question, Tim, is uh, in regard to vaccination. Obviously, uh, the U.S. is doing it now at lightning speed. We certainly know that everybody wants to vaccinate their own people before they, before they start sharing this. That being said, if the United States is close to vaccinating their, uh, their population by the summer, will we then see some come across from michigan towards uh, the middle of summer latter part of summer but then again by that time apparently all of ours is supposed to come due anyway uh well i think you're going to see trudeau push for that anyway it'd be kind of dumb if he didn't right given the pace at which vaccine is is uh happening and then the other the vaccination isn't happening in canada at that speed and the other point i guess uh scott that i expect him to say something about is china is the two michaels um canadians will be looking for for all of all of that among the the big smiles that i'm sure both will have about uh, normal relations being restored what sort of message does this send to china when the canada has made the declaration that it has today meeting with the u.s president then if there's a message of unity coming out the other end of this does this signal 
a change. I remember when when Trump said everybody on their own. Everybody thought, oh, my yeah. goodness, the world order is changing. Are, are we seeing that start to stabilize? Yeah, and I think that's part of the message they want to deliver. Look, you don't have a, a wily, um, unfamiliar president in terms of how the, dip, how the, the, the Westphalian diplomatic system works, who is prepared to go all on his own. You have more of a traditionalist in Joe Biden who believes in allies and said as much, who believes in international organizations and is singling in his first big international meeting, all of that. So that should say to the Chinese and to the Russians, for that matter, and to other um, troublesome actors in the world, that, hey, all right, they're trying to get their act back together again, so maybe we need to alter our playbook, because with Trump, we could um, play his game of one-offs to our benefit and maybe screw over a few countries like Canada along the way, but now we have to revert to what worked or what didn't work previously. When the Huawei CFO was first detained, and even to where we are today, China doesn't really seem to be bullying the United States about this, including that's where, you know, despite that's where all of this started, that's where the uh, where, where the warrant originated. Uh, and again, China has chosen to put the boots to Canada instead of knocking on the door of the United States and saying, hey, what are you doing here uh, with our CFO? Is that going to change now? Uh, that Biden is in there? Will they start to direct their attention towards Biden and less to Canada, considering that's uh, where all this started? It's to bully us, and we're more sensitive about being bullied, right? We're the, the skinny little kid that the, that the muscle-bound uh, kid kicked the sand on, and we don't mm-hmm. like it, but we are hoping our big brother, the U.S., will step in. So I, I don't know how much bullying they'll do of, of Biden. That's probably not in their interest yet as they try and figure out where he's going to go. But, hey... We, we, as I know, what have we done? We complain a lot. We need the help of others, and our two Michaels still remain in prison. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman. No, Chairman. Oh God, Scott. Sorry, I, I can't cross it. You know, Jeez. I don't. I don't want to put my sharpie across my screen. Uh, Tim Powers, <laughs> Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Avacus Data. Now, if I need a job, Tim, I know where to come. Anytime, buddy. You know, we need, we need some good office help. I'll tell you. <laughs> Thank care. you so much, Tim. You be well. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talk about what's happening south of the border. A couple of big events uh, from our standpoint. Anyway, that is uh, President Trump meeting with sorry, President Biden meeting with. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as well as uh, information in regard to Donald Trump's tax returns. To talk more about all of this, uh, Thane Rosenbaum is with us, CBS radio legal analyst and with us now. Thane, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Anytime for you, Scott. Yes, everything's fine. So how much uh, how much attention is the Biden and Trudeau meeting getting down in the United States today? Not much. Um I mean, I think in part is because we've gotten used to four years of, of isolation from all countries. The only country that seemed to matter to us is south of our border, Mexico, and the southern border. Uh, as you know, that received lots of attention by way of President Trump's legal uh, executive orders to build the wall uh, to shut down illegal immigration uh, from the southern border. But, you know, as you know, we withdrew from everything else internationally, including our relationship from Canada. So I think it hasn't yet received the attention. But I do think that Trudeau and Biden 
share some progressive, um, at least the Biden administration shares some progressive sensibilities. And my guess is that there will be much more friendlier relationships uh, in the Biden administration with Trudeau as prime minister. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, one of our reporters was saying if this was, in fact, Donald Trump, there'd be probably 40 tweets about this already, whereas now we're really not finding much more uh, about it until after there's a, a, a press briefing. What's it like for you and Americans covering this president uh, compared to the compared to the last? Uh, many used to say in the old days, boy, we never hear from our politicians. Then all of a sudden, Donald Trump was tweeting uh, virtually, it seemed, every hour. How is that is is biden presenting a more civil more sort of a stable uh environment there yes in terms of the presentation is certainly more presidential of course uh, because trump's appeal to a large segment of the american public was the fact that he was irreverent and unpresidential so this is a return to something that looks more elegant and decorous uh, which we had not, we had lost that for four years. But we haven't lost Donald Trump. You know, he's still mm-hmm. in some ways part of the news coverage. Uh, even just yesterday with a Supreme Court decision in connection with a criminal proceeding that has been in the works for several years here in New York. Uh, and there are a number of other cases that are, are progressing along as well. And so, including perhaps even federal investigation from the Justice Department. We heard yesterday in the confirmation hearings with Merrick Garland, who is has been nominated to be our next attorney general, that he's planning on conducting a thorough investigation of the Capitol uh, uh, rioting on January 6th. And, you know, the question is, does the Biden administration or more importantly, his his Justice Department have any appetite uh, to to prosecute uh, former President Trump even after this Senate impeachment trial, uh, but do it through a very different mechanism. And, of course, there's been a lawsuit that was filed last week by two congresspersons and the NAACP uh, in basically invoking a a very little-known statute from the 19th century called the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was passed back in 1871, because it, during Reconstruction, there was such terrorizing of uh, newly freed slaves uh, who had, had theoretically had all rights of citizenship restored, but the Ku Klux Klan made life miserable for them and lawmakers who were trying to change the law to provide more enfranchisement for uh, African Americans. And so we had to pass a legislation to make to per- make it both a crime and open up civil remedies for anyone who disrupts the work of Congress in doing that. And so they're thinking now of trying to use that statute from 1871 to say that's exactly what happened on January 6th, the disruption of the work of congresspersons whose, whose job was to make sure that African-American votes were not disenfranchised. Many said uh, all during this campaign that Donald Trump's problems would start after he ha- had left office. How will that uh, how will that soften or or will it his influence over the Republican Party if these legal situations start to drag out? Obviously, the fact that he didn't reveal his taxes way back when that was a massive issue. Do people still care about that? 
his 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 base never did right i mean you know the the term of art four or five years ago during the campaign is everything including the access hollywood tape that was supposed to be so condemning everyone said well all of that is already baked in uh his people don't care and remember he famously said i could walk down fifth avenue and shoot somebody and my voters would still stick with me and he was right (laughs) It seemed absurd, but he was right. So I don't think it's going to affect uh, his voters. What might affect the voters is the continued hounding of Donald Trump by way of these various lawsuits. You can see he's still using the word witch hunts. And so I think that to him is code to essentially tell his base it hasn't stopped. They won't leave me alone. But is every legal is every legal challenge he enters into is that all the fault of the the current president is that all the fault of the American people is that all a fault of the system? Yeah, well, remember <laughs> everything about Donald Trump was you know against the system, right? Yeah. So that it was all about some you know uh, an America that made it positive. It was a conspiratorial America. And so to him, all of these cases are tied together. They're all one witch hunt, even though they're all very different um, in so many ways. There's, you know, there's two women that are suing him for defamation. There's the criminal prosecution here in New York. New York attorney generals brought a case involving the inflating of his assets in order to get bank loans. Um, you know, it's just there's at least six cases all going on at the same time. I think it keeps him in the news. Uh, I think the Democrats are probably making a mistake by trying to keep him in the news uh, mm-hmm. because it certainly makes it possible for him to never lose control of his 75 million voters. Will there be anything detrimental to him in his if his tax records are released? Is, is that going to damage his brand in any way? You know, I was saying this the other day on another program. I, um, I remember when I was a young lawyer in New York in the early 1980s, and Donald Trump was a young real estate tycoon. Even back then, I don't know how old he was, in his 30s, he was the most sued man in America, and he, more importantly, initiated more lawsuits than anyone. This is a guy, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's been in 5,000 lawsuits. So what might be very terrorizing for us to be involved in five cases at the same time for him, I think it's, you know, standard procedure. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, some of these cases ha- are criminal, have criminal penalties attached to them. Um, but we don't know how far they're going to go. The only thing that happened yesterday, the Supreme Court said that the subpoenas seeking his business records and tax returns uh, are, need to be honored and that his his objection that the prosecution was overbroad fails because he he's not immune uh, from prosecution if he's acting outside the scope of his official duties. Um, with Donald Trump, uh, there's always a fight. There's always a divide. It's always us against them, left against right, whatever. It's, it's you know, in, in even uh, if you read anything on how he conducted his businesses, he would take his executives and pit them against each other. 
uh, and we see where that has led. I mean, he was elected and then eventually lost it all, the House and and the Senate and such. So uh, at the end of the and now he's doing that to the Republican Party. Now he's dividing the Republican Party uh, and whether he has or how much influence he has over that or his base does. Isn't that all irrelevant in a sense that the party's divided and a divided party can't win? Uh, it just eats itself. Is there fear of that with the Republican Party? It's an interesting point you raised, Scott, because, right, what you said about his employees and how he ran his business is essentially how he handled the country, which was in just not just infighting in the, among Republicans, which he kept somewhat unified. It's just that he divided the country itself. Yeah. You know, we had never been, and certainly in my lifetime, this divisive. Uh, and so I think that that was, I mean, one of the reasons why people were very nervous about a second term is because we were, you know, heading. And in fact, the fact what happened on January 6th was another example of the divided nature of the Trump presidency and how he inspired, you know, us against them kind of thinking. Right. And he's still doing it. Um but, you know, look, no Republican has ever come close to galvanizing voters like he has. And everyone now sees that because there are no other Republicans that have stand a chance of picking up any of those, you know, coattails. And Trump isn't going to give them up. So we're going to hear soon. I think he's speaking today or tomorrow, his first major address, to give us a sense of what's his plan. Uh, does he plan to run again in 2024? Uh, all I know is you're right. The divisiveness is destructive. But on Election Day, he still galvanized 74, 75 million people to vote for him. Uh, and that's after one impeachment. That's after endless series of you know questions about his leadership. And that all of those voters still were loyal. Uh, we're obviously not hearing from him every hour on the hour. How much does that um, uh, diminish his influence? I mean, you have to be, you know, really into the movement to go into the, uh, you know, the far right websites and wherever he is now communicating, if he is. But the average American isn't hearing anything from him now, are they? Well, not directly through Twitter, right, because he's now received a lifetime ban. But his spokesperson, I think, is Jason Miller, is issuing statements every day and, and, and sometimes several times a day in response to anything that the president seems to want to speak about. So, you know, this is the thing about the press, right? I mean, you know, they created him. They gave him an extraordinary amount of free advertising mm-hmm. four years ago. Uh, in ways that none of the other candidates received. He was enormously entertaining. And for four years, he resulted in, in a massive increase in ratings. Uh, shows were devoted entirely uh, to him. Uh, the whole notion of objective reporting had been dispensed with because of him. Shows were purportedly new shows were avowedly about negative stories, negative attacks on the presidency so and on the right goes supporting him did the same thing again that divisiveness so i think that the press you know on one hand wanted to see him lose but on the other hand they didn't want to see him go yeah because they had never been so relevant 
Good point. Good point. Uh, a lot of fingers to be uh, to be pointed in this discussion. That's for sure, and it's not over yet. Uh, Thane Rosenbaum has been with us, CBS Radio legal analyst, talking about Donald Trump, his life uh, after the presidency, and what legal uh, actions await him. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. The province has mandated that school boards have to test a minimum of 5% of schools per week and at least 2% of those have to be students. But with new, more contagious variants surfacing in the province, critics say the testing needs to be expanded and more safety protocols have to be brought in. Education Minister Stephen Lecce has promised that once the program is fully up and running, health units will be able to get through up to 50,000 of these tests each week. Last week, five schools had been closed down across the province because of outbreaks, while 255 schools were reporting at least one case of COVID-19. Dave Woodard, Global News. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly with Ryerson University, epidemiologist. Uh, Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. It's my pleasure, Scott. Uh, The headline is schools should stay open even if there is a third wave of COVID-19. What are your thoughts on that? Well, at the moment, as, as the figures are showing, the, the uh, positivity rate's pretty low in schools. So at the moment, we're cautiously, cautiously saying, let's keep that course going. But testing becomes absolutely vital, perhaps more vital than it has been up to date. Uh, we should have been doing testing for a long time, actually. So we've got the ability now for rapid tests, very cheap, very fast, and the sensitivity is very good. So that, for example, if we see that positivity rate beginning to increase again, at the moment it's around one, a little less than one, for most of the results we've seen in that last survey. As it begins to increase, though, gets up to about 3%, uh, we're going to get very nervous, and we begin to think. If that number goes up, we begin to think about closing down again, simply because the schools are are like a mixing vessel. The kids Mm -hmm. don't, don't get ill. But they're taking it home to to the grandparents and people like that. Imagine the guilt, you know, little little Johnny saying, well, you know, I'm the one that took it home and granddad's dead because of that. It's Hmm. terrible. Uh, obviously, we've heard that uh, with controls and the controlled environment that schools uh, have been up to this point, uh, they haven't seemed to have been an issue other than what you're saying, of course, uh, people taking it home. They're saying even in regard to uh, teachers, the CDC in the, in the U.S. was saying uh, more seems to be coming into the schools from teachers rather than uh, the students themselves. Um, that being said, variants become an issue. Will, will, will vary? be a determinant a, a determination on whether these schools stay open or not or are they just like the uh, the first stage of this virus n- don't seem to be as transmissible or, or certainly inf- infect kids as much I think we need to keep our radar on Scott in all directions and not take anything for granted uh, yeah, variants are, are going to be doing the same thing, only much more efficiently from a viral point of view. So how do we counter that? As we, start, we ramp up our protection and precautions and preventions to be more efficient as well. So I mean, the method of transmission is still A to B through the air in a matter of seconds, usually. So we've got to prevent that. So better masking, perhaps uh, better quality masking, double masking isn't a bad idea, making sure that people are really wearing even one mask properly. I was in the supermarket the other day, and somebody's wearing it under their skin, under their chin. These are stocking <laughs> shelves. 
and said, well, shouldn't they get you a better mask? He said, well, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm claustrophobic. Well, this person should be out putting the stuff in the garbage or in the stock room by himself, unloading truck, but not working with, uh, you know, the staff. So I think we need to be cautious in all regards, looking behind you, top of the head, back, round either side. Yeah, variants are one concern. Uh, testing here becomes important as well. So, that, for example, every week, every teacher gets tested uh, Monday morning, a condition of their employment. Uh, we can do that now with a rapid test, cost $5 or less each one. We get the results in 15 minutes and with a very high specificity. That's the kind of finger on the pulse we should have had for months. Uh, many uh, uh, have been talking about mental health and, and balancing the mental health aspect of keeping the kids in school versus uh, obviously at home. Uh, one expert said online learning was, was basically an essential service. How do you balance these two? And I guess as long as infection rates stay down, your question is answered. Yeah, you've got this question, Scott, of balance. You're right, and it's got to be looked at, but from different angles. I mean, we've got the balance, for example, from a political podium point of view, where where there's a kind of what we might call a false dichotomy between either we make a decision on the to, to prefer business owners, or we make a decision health. We either get health or economy, and that's a false dichotomy. I mean, we've got to look at both sides, but if we mm-hmm. don't have the health and we get into a third wave that's even worse than the second wave, which was worse than the first wave, and if we let our guard down and let that happen, uh, forget about economy. I mean, that's all gone down the tubes. So we've got to keep control of the virus. We've got to protect those other people, but the virus is the number one. It's the primacy of, of our attention at the moment. Look after the people who are suffering, but let's keep the virus under control. Um, the schools are, are, are a real interesting balance because you, you, kids need their companionship. It's not just the lessons and so on mm-hmm. that's important, but they need the companionship. So we've got to balance that as well. And, and I don't, I think in some cases, I think we're doing a very good job. It's surprisingly how kids can adapt. But in the long term, what's this going to be? What's this going to be? A year and a half, probably, mm-hmm. altogether. They're either in and out of school, sometimes more out than in. Uh, and that's not a good thing for the future of these little kids. I mean, that's what one one tenth of their life sometimes if you're if they're mm. that age. Is this a race between the variants, the new variants, and the vaccine's arrival? Yeah, I look at it, uh, Scott, as a kind of a dystopian plot. On the horizon ahead of you, you see the uh, the the vaccine cavalry has arrived. It's already late. It's stumbling. It's lost its compass. It will arrive, but they're not quite sure when. Look behind you on the horizon in that direction, you've got the mutants, right? A bizarre collection of strange creatures that are heading in that direction as well. So it really depends on who gets here first in sufficient numbers to determine our future. Is it going to be very positive or very negative? What the, what the, what the, what the mutations actually do, the variants, what they really do, is, uh, is, is spread in the same way but more efficiently. With one exception, that's the one from South Africa that we're a little bit worried about because it does not react to the vaccine in the way that it should do. So South Africa has returned, I think, or is returning its AstraZeneca vaccine because it's not very good against uh, that particular one, 351, B351. We don't have much of that here in Canada. There's been a couple of isolated uh, isolations of that. So, so far, the vaccines are moving in the right direction, and the AstraZeneca for most of our, uh, even, even the variants that's beginning to increase in, in our society is working quite well.
Um, uh, there was some questioning at the beginning of vaccination whether that actually those that are vaccinated actually uh, are then not capable of spreading. Do we have any more information on that? Whether after you have had your two shots, if you can still, uh, although you may be fine, whether you can still pass on the virus. It's a key question, Scott, and I'm glad you asked it because we honestly don't know in the long term. The endpoints for those very large uh, phase three trials, as you remember, all the vaccines had to go through, except the Russian one that sort of skirted it. We're not quite sure that happened. Um, the the endpoint was: Does it prevent infection, uh, illness? Does it prevent illness? And does it prevent serious illness? And the answer to both those questions is yes, much better than we even thought it would. But the question about is it still possible, you don't have an illness, but can you still become infected and then spread it to others, that's not completely clear yet. And so nobody should be saying yes for sure or no for sure. We need the longer term. And what's happening, you see, after the vaccines get rolled out and we've got being put into people's arms in various countries around the world, the follow-up for that is still a continuation of those trials. So give it another couple more months and we should have a better answer in that area. So in other words, short answer, uh, if you're particularly if you're in a high-risk group, one of the wrinkly old nasty people like me or the, those that are severely health-compromised, even if you've had your vaccine, for the next foreseeable few months, masking and distancing would still be a very good idea. Officials said uh, several weeks ago that uh, that the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine was days away from uh, from being approved. Uh, and, and then and obviously now there seems to be some delay. There's chatter again that it is it is just around the corner now. Um, what are the delays? Uh, we've heard that it's labeling issues, but that seems like it would be something that would be corrected quite quickly. Uh, it, does it? Is it something to do with labeling issues, or does it have something to do with the fact of that South African variant? The uh, the, the review committees have a tremendous amount of work to do. So what they've been generally doing, I don't know if you know this, is that they've been asking the manufacturers to forward information to them before the, the vaccine's actually ready to roll out. So they can begin to go through this stuff, phase one, phase two, phase three, early results. Uh, the, the, the stuff they have to go through really is quite complicated. Uh, not only the scientific material, the, does it do what it's supposed to do? Uh, what are the, the safety uh, concerns? Are there, what are the low-level mild reactions locally in your arm? Uh, what are the systematic, in other words, whole body reactions, sort of a slight raise in temperature, a little feeling of fatigue and so on. These are normal. These are normal results, the kind of thing we'd love, want to see with a vaccine. It means it's working. Something's going on in there. Uh, and then, of course, are there any very rare reactions of an allergic nature? And all this stuff's got to be reviewed. But also uh, the exact labeling. In other words, the, 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 how it's used, the instructions given for use, uh, the specific period of time between the first dose and the second dose, what's the scientific background for that, and especially with the AstraZeneca, because if you remember, they had a uh, sort of an accidental occurrence where they, they gave some results, uh, some vaccines to people with, with only a half a dose, uh, and it turned out that uh, uh, that group had slightly better results than the other group. Yeah. Uh, the problem was, of course, that the numbers were, were smaller than they should have been for the proper 
authority to study. And so they had to go back and do a few more people. So there's a lot of complications in there. But yeah, it's, it's rolling in. The best information I have is that it isn't a matter of days. We're in the last week now, and we should, I expect to see that probably before the end of the week. Do you think this has something to do with a dose issue, meaning whether to get five or six vials out or five or six doses out of a vial, uh, similar to the situation with Pfizer way back when, uh, wanting to uh, Canada to get that sixth dose out of a vial, but that required Health Canada labeling, changing the labeling? That's more of a logistic thing and a more of an ec- economical thing. Yeah, yeah. If you use your old traditional syringes, you get about five from that. If you use the mo- modern ones with the zero headspace, you can actually get the sixth dose from that lot. That's a more of a, that's more of a mechanical process. Now, I think the, the 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 real the real problems here are are looking at overall data and uh, and how to get it in. So, for example, you just asked whether uh, even. Even the business of, uh, you know, the second dose, the rollout of the second dose is important. Uh, people have said that this is how it was designed. This is how we should administer it. First one dose, then 21 or 28 days later, whatever the manufacturer says, the second dose. But then we've noticed that as this period increases a little bit, there isn't a substantial problem with that. And in fact, giving that first dose to, to as many people as possible, there seems to be some real logic benefit behind that. And even if the second dose rolls up a little bit later, that might be okay, says some of the early inquiries into that. And even we have some vaccine experts now, and I'm not a vaccine expert by any means, but we've got some vaccine experts are saying it wouldn't be that bad if we gave a different form of vaccine. The first one will cover, say, 80 percent of your resistance, and the other one will actually overlap that a little bit by giving the different type of vaccine. So we may get a better result, but we don't have definitive results on that. So ear to the ground, keep your eyes open, and we're listen- we're learning every week on this. Um, we're just reading. There's lots of uh, attacking at the provincial level. Uh, a lot of politics here. Um, the headlines today is Quebec residents 85 plus can get their shot next week. Ontario saying it's going to take longer than that for uh, Ontario to get moving in that direction. And there's been a lot of uh, politics going back and forth in the media in regard to this. But if you if you dig deeper into this, you can see the reasons for it, which really don't seem to be coming out. Uh, and that is that, uh, and I'm looking at recent data, which is, I believe, up till yesterday, uh, Quebec has not administered one single second dose. They've blown everything that they have on four doses, which has allowed them to vaccinate 4% of their population. Uh, Toronto, or sorry, Ontario, uh, 338,000 first doses, 247,000 second doses at a 2.3 vaccination rate. So what is better to do here? Because it really seems that the politics is, 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 is starting to influence people's minds here. Is it better to vaccinate more of your population like Quebec has without, like, and again, they're double what Ontario is, but they've got no do- no second doses done. It's all first doses. So why isn't that information made public before we start attacking politically? Do you think this is a good idea to be unloading the fridge rather than waiting for the second dose as per Health Canada and the, the manufacturers? My goodness, uh, Scott, what a big basket full of questions you just raised. And it's, 
they're they're right on as well. I mean, from the very first thing you mentioned, we got we got politics with provinces in Canada. Of course, we could, provinces have that seniority, particularly with health issues, over the feds. It's not as if we have a top-down approach from you know one government to slowly disseminating it out. And so, if the provinces want to each handle their own planning and their own policies, uh, they can do that. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen this 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 dissimilar approach, this discrepancy between provinces. Some doing an excellent job. Uh, BC was, do, was holding the line wonderfully in the beginning. The Maritimes were the model of what we should all be doing in Canada, um, and the, the the provinces that seem to have politicians standing up every day giving their opinions, uh, such as Quebec and Ontario, were not doing anywhere near as well as provinces where the chief medical officer was standing up and giving their opinions. So let me let me push back on let me push back on that one, doctor, um, because again, I've asked many people, and they'll say BC is the model here. BC was very slow and still does not require mandatory masking in all schools. They were December, I think, before they jumped on that initially. Uh, Alberta and BC are the only ones that have not uh, jumped on to the app. And again, if you look at BC's uh, second dose rates, they're sitting at 55,000 uh, compared to 163 that have had both doses. So again, I remember very vividly Dr. Bonnie Henry saying, I can't justify having a vaccine in the freezer when there's sick people out there that need it. And then, of course, a week or two later, the, the, the supply was shut down and everybody was scrambling trying to find that second dose. So again, I, I'm not sure that's accurate. I think it's just two different approaches. One unloading the second or one keeping the second dose on the shelf the other deciding to 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 put more priority into the first dose oh i agree in fact there's a very strong arguments to be made for both of those policies in other words getting all of those is out to as many people as possible uh, and then hoping that we get enough for the second dose uh, before too long. That's one policy. The other one is to say, let's do it exactly as it says on the label. Let's give one now and hold the other one back for this same person within 21 days or 28, whichever the manufacturer is. And I've seen arguments both ways, scientific arguments, not just political arguments. And so Imperial College London was a leader in this area, and they've been looking at both sides of the fence. And there seems to be a lot to be said both sides. I don't know which side you're going to come out on. It's probably one of these half dozen of one and six of the other. Um, but in terms of back to what you're talking about here, I think we're, we're, we're faced with, uh, sure, different, different backgrounds, different, not different backgrounds, different uh, uh, demands from the different provinces. Somehow, some areas, for, even within the province, uh, you know, the argument is about should York be different to uh, Oakville and 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 uh, you, you know the various regions within Ontario. Ontario, mm-hmm. and of course the demands are different. We get different population. We get different age relations of population. Different Brampton, of course, has got a huge amount of people working in taxis and limousines and factories. Whereas another area may just have offices, another area may have uh, mainly retired people. So th- there is a difference in the way that we look at it. So I think that the rollout of vaccines is, is, is okay to have it set against the background of real needs assessment. And that's, that's okay. And I agree that uh, just, an, uh, just looking at one province against another, you can't really compare that too much. No, I think, uh, I think we've, we're, the, what worries me a great deal, Scott, is, is the projections of, of getting this done. Ontario at the moment has got about 15 million people. 
we would need to vaccinate somewhere close to 10 million, at least, at least 10 yeah. million in order to get. That's 20 million doses. And 20 million doses, if we're aiming for the end of this year, which is the end of December, say 10 months from now, that's 2 million doses a month in Ontario. That works out at about 68,000 doses a day. Now, so far, I think the maximum we've done is about 3,000 doses a day. So the difference between 3,000 and 68,000 is yeah, a tremendous it's be difference. huge. I hope that we can really ramp up to those larger figures. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist and Professor Emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Stay safe. Bye. I've been doing this for, um, never mind. I've been doing this for a long time, 36 years. Think about that. Uh, and every so often we get uh, letters, uh, well, we get lots of notes and letters sent to us, but uh, sometime with some very interesting requests and, and such. And uh, we have one of those right now. Uh, I will read it to you. My name is Stella Slater. I am writing on behalf of my husband, Robert Slater. He is 30 years old and looking for a kidney donor. Uh, him and his family have a rare genetic disease called Fabry. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, it's called Fabry disease and as such are unable to donate. We are hoping to get word out to strangers to get tested as it is our only hope. We are a young couple and look forward to getting past this and continuing uh, with our lives. To talk more about all of this, uh, Stella Slater is with us now. Stella, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, I'm good. Thank you. So let's first start. Uh, how is Robert doing? What's his condition right now? Oh, sure. Um, so over the past, uh, I would say, couple of years, um, he's been dealing with a lot of nausea and um, tiredness. Um, and obviously all this is taking an effect on his mental health as well. Um, what can you tell us, uh, let's start with, uh, this disease. It's called Fabry. Is that accurate? Yes, that's right. And, and what can you tell us about that? He and his sister, uh, suffer from this. Is that accurate? He actually has, um, three brothers. Um, so his brothers have the disease as well and his mom. Um, and, and is that the reason, uh, what can you tell us about this disease? Yeah, it targets his, uh, or their main organ, so their heart, their kidneys, and it, it could affect their lungs as well. And um, it's a progressive disease, so um, over time it gets worse. And uh, that's what we're dealing with right now. And for, for Robert, it has affected his kidneys. Right. And how is the rest of the family? Are they in the same situation that Robert is in? Um, right now, his mom's in the same situation, uh, but his brothers are all doing okay right now. And any idea what, uh, what, what the cause of this is? Is it, is it simply genetic? And, and why is this uh, flaring up now in Robert? Do we know? Yeah, so it is genetic. Um, we're not sure why it started so soon uh, with him because it usually doesn't start until you're in your 40s or 50s. Um, so when it started happening, it was like, quite a shock to us because we weren't preparing for it until, you know, like 20 years from now, 30 years from now. So it's been hard. So how did this start for, for you and Robert? How What happened? 
So just after um, our wedding in 2018, he had an appointment with his uh, nephrologist, his kidney specialist, and um, they noticed that his kidney function was dropping. So it dropped about 30% um, in 2018. So it went down to 70%, or went from 70%, sorry, down to 40%. And uh, at that point, we were um, told to have it, that it was going to decline in function from there. So is that when it was determined that he needed uh, a new kidney, that he needed a donor? No, they at that point, they were just, we were just told that it would decline in function and they weren't really sure how fast it would decline. Um, but last year, I think about May last year was when they said like, it's getting to the point where you're going to have to look for a live uh, kidney donor. So what's life been like for him? Uh, what's it like for him now? And, and what sort of treatment is he getting while waiting? Uh, right now, he's not getting any treatment. Um, they're in the talks about dialysis in the next few months if a living donor isn't found. And how has COVID-19 complicated this? It, you know, I mean, it's bad enough having a situation like this, but then in the middle of a global pandemic, how has that complicated things? Uh, well, instead of um, working normally, um, uh, in the field at his job. He's working from home and he's been working from home since last March, so about a year now. And um, he's not going to return to work in, until all this is over. So um, uh, at this point, is he is the process started, to, uh, started for him looking for a new kidney? Has that started or is there di- dialysis first? Um, so we're in the process of looking for a living donor. Uh, We've we've reached out to friends and family for about a year now, um, and we haven't had much luck with that. Um, But in order for him to receive a deceased donor and be placed on the the transplant list to wait, uh, he has to go on dialysis first. Hmm. So there's a, there's a difference um, between finding a live donor and someone who's passed that is a organ donor. Yeah. So what what is, what what stage are you at now? What what is what is the biggest challenge for you now? What are you trying to do now? I think our biggest thing is uh, looking for a living donor. Um, just because he is so young, dialysis isn't really the the preferred option or the best option. So we're trying to postpone that as much as possible and hopefully uh, look for people to get tested and be a match. And what's involved in finding a living donor? How does that process even work? Uh, So if anyone wanted to get tested, um, they would email livingdonors at stjoes.ca and they would tell them who they're looking to get tested for and the transplant team will send them a form that outlines um, that asks them their family history and some basic questions about them. They would send it back to the transplant team and if 
everything looks okay, they'll be signed up for blood work. How difficult is it to find a match? Is it is it the match part or is it the donor part? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. Um, so is it easy to get a liver from another person uh, to do this? Or uh, you, you talked about finding the match. How difficult is it to find a match? Um, I just think it depends on a few things like um, the donor's family history, um, potentially their blood type, um, how old they are, if they have any uh, pre-existing conditions. So it's based on a lot of things. And that's why um, the process is so long as well. And you've said you've exhausted your family situation there. Yes. Uh, how do you go about uh, trying to find somebody? What, what's uh, you were talking about this? Uh, the website Living Donors at St. Joe's uh, .ca. Um, how do you get this message out? How do you how do you go about trying to find a donor? So the Living Donors at St. Joe's .ca. Um, that's an email. That's the direct email mm-hmm. uh, to the transplant team, and that's just for people. Um, who are willing to get tested and to get more information. Um, otherwise, we've just let people, let our family and friends know our situation. Um, put, we've put a few Facebook posts up, and it's just a lot of like awareness and advocacy on our end. Uh, I, I've certainly heard of these stories before uh, where someone has come forward. Do we know what um, what the challenge is for a donor, what they have to go through? Uh, as far as I know, the uh, recovery time for a donor is a lot less uh, than the recipient's recovery time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just a few days in the hospital and they could get uh back to regular duties um, within a couple of weeks upon leaving the hospital. Um, yeah. So what's it like for you two to, to live with this and in, 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 in desperately searching for a donor? What's life been like for you? Uh, it's been pretty hard. Um, I think it's just hard to uh, see my husband like feel sick and feel tired and see how it's affecting his mental health and how he has to always like go to doctor's appointments on his days off. Like that's all his days off consists of his doctor's hmm. appointments. What, uh, what, how can people help Stella? If uh, someone's interested in this story, where can they go? What can they do? Sure. Um, so if they, if anyone has any questions or wants to get tested, uh, they can contact me at kidneyforrob at gmail.com. So that's K-I-D-N-E-Y-F-O-R-R-O-B at gmail.com. Or they can contact the transplant team directly at livingdonors at stjoes.ca. That's uh, L-I-V-I-N-G-D-O-N-O-R-S at stjoes.ca. All right, and how urgent is this? How I guess if this continues, Stella, Robert will end up on a 
on on, dial, on dialysis. Yes, and um, with his blood type, we were told that it's a five-year wait um, for the transplant list. All right, Stella Slater has been with us, uh, her husband Robert, 30 years of age, uh, Fabry disease, and needs a new kidney. Living donors at stjoes.ca and kidneyforrob at gmail.com if you can help in any way. Stella, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Please give our best to Robert. Good luck with all of this. We're thinking about you. Thanks so much. Stella Slater, husband uh, Robert Slater, 30 years old, looking for a kidney donor. My. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.